Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the show today on what is a warm summer morning here in a jubilant capital following England's victory over Germany in the football yesterday is Victoria Vaughan. Uh, Victoria is marketing coach at the Brand Surgery, an ethical marketing and design agency based in West Sussex. Uh, Victoria, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Now, I think we should start by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that we record this podcast on June the 30th, 2021. So we're still living under some form of social restrictions due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's now been the case for the best part of the last 14 or 15 months. Now, over the course of the whole crisis, how has this affected you and affected your business, would you say? I, it's affected me in a number of ways, but the thing that's been difficult is all my clients uh, have a massive change to their working life, and a lot of my clients are in the um, building energy management sector, and um, so they've been working with universities and such like, and so they've had a massive change, and just one of the things is because everyone's working from home, I just think that the priorities have changed in terms of marketing and in any recession, marketing is the first thing to go. So there's been a lot of marketing budgets that have been cut. Mm, And what's the impact of that sort of been for your business then? Well, my income, uh, my income from 2019, I was increasing, uh, my business by about 20% a year and so it was looking really good heading into 2020 and then suddenly in March when the news came it went down to a fifth of the normal what I was expecting and what what I had predicted so it's been a massive shock actually and it's really hard you know as a marketing consultant marketing coach everybody perceives that you would be really excellent at marketing, which I am, great for your clients. But in a recession, it's really difficult because marketing budgets are the first thing to go. And it's really hard not to take that personally and think it's anything to do with your delivery of your job or your skills, your expertise. And it does knock your confidence somewhat. It does, doesn't it? It's very difficult when you're sort of facing a situation like that where you're seeing income dropping and there's not a great deal that you can sort of do about that. Um, And I suppose that probably has a significant knock-on effect for sort of personal morale, mental health and well-being, doesn't it, that you have to consider? Yeah, it has had a real knock-on effect on my mental and physical health. And funny enough, last June... About two months into it, I had to go for an endometrial biopsy and um, it came back. I didn't have cancer, but I had very near cancer and it's caused by um, hormone receptors in my womb that are affected by estrogen going to my womb. And that can be 
there's actually cortisone in your body that you get when your stress acts as a xenoestrogen and it attacks your womb. And that's prostate, breast and wounds as well. So it affects everyone. And um, anyway, so basically I had to, I was under oncology for three months last year. And I, I'm sure that is a result of all the stress and the anxiety caused by COVID. And, you know, and panicking, it's really hard not to panic when your income goes down by a fifth. Well, it goes down to if this is what you were for. And by Hiscox, um, the business interruption insurance, obviously, um, they declined my claim. They declined it because they said it is unprecedented. And they said because my business wasn't officially closed down by government, I wasn't covered. But a mm. lot of my clients' businesses were. So it's just. I think you saw that you had the villains and the heroes, as people say, in this reception. And it's really interesting finding out who the villains and the heroes were. I'm a company director, one of the thousands and thousands, and basically I wasn't covered. But however, I am claiming part-time furlough now. But what I'd really like to do is I'm at that crossroads now. So I'm thinking, do I hang on and wait till you know it gets better or is this see this rather than a reason for anxiety see it for a reason to think could I retrain in something else or should this is this a a message for me to retrain and so the government have brought out all this training aids to help people you know retrain in different careers and I was looking at the courses and funny enough there was some in dental technicians and medical, which I was quite interested in. I'm at a stage now where I'm thinking, actually, I've weathered one recession in 2008, uh, you know, and then this time round as well. I'd actually like to be in a position so if there's another recession, I'm in demand. And that's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling all of this COVID has left me feeling worthless. And am I good at my job? But it's just because marketing's the first thing to go. Yeah, and it's difficult, isn't it, when you're faced with a challenge like this, where you know you're forced into a career crossroads because of the economic situation. And I suppose that the consequence of that is that there are so many people that are going to be out of work as a result of the crisis and are having to sort of upskill and move into other sectors. So it's going to be a real time of change for the labour market and for the economy at large, isn't it? Exactly. And just going back to um, what was on offer for the courses, there was a a really good range of courses out there. And I got quite excited about the dental one, thinking, hey, this could be really good. But when you dig further, they're saying that those courses are only available for people up to 24. And when you hear in the news about what's on offer, I'm sure that they did say it's for, you know, any stage in your life. So, I need to dig a bit further, but it's all, I find everything, all the help that is out there is really unclear. You don't know really where you're heading. So, but the really great thing about marketing is that whatever career I choose, and even if I decide to stick with this and go down, you know, I've got that marketing background to help propel me in whatever direction I need to go.
Yeah, exactly. Even with a career change, I suppose the learnings that you've taken from your business life are going to really hold you in good stead, aren't they? And as much as an ordeal as the pandemic has been, I think we've all learned something from our experience during this time as well, even if it has been more negative than positive. Yeah, definitely. And actually, one of the really good things I have done I've been looking through my CV again, thinking, actually, what have I achieved? And I've achieved loads. Yeah, you know, I've been mayoress of Worthing. I've, you know, I've, I've, uh, I founded my uh, charitable organisation, Talent Within You, to help teens. And funny enough, ironically, give them self-esteem when actually I could do with a bit of it myself at the moment. And when I was going through all of that, I was thinking, actually, a lot of things I've done are very corporate social responsibility related. Mm. I was thinking maybe I should be looking for a career in that, you know, because my experience leads me to that. And obviously, through my health scare that I just told you about, I also started an initiative for Blooming Wonderful Wombs and just looking at all the things that can lead to um, an unhealthy womb and, you know, stress, the cosmetics, all the bad ingredients in cosmetics and, and and the foods we eat. I mean, I've not, I've stopped eating meat since then. And what I haven't told you, so I'm jumping around a bit, is that I actually reversed the damage in three months just by going meat-free and meditating every day. So it mm. can be done. You can reverse damage, but you know, there's, so there's all this corporate social responsibility stuff I've done, and I'm thinking maybe I should be in that direction. But I think we just touched on the well-being side. When you're stressed, and when you've got, you know, this horrendous lack of income, you know, what you've been used to, and you're making those modifications in life, it's when you ask yourself where, what direction should I go in? You're thinking, am I? You know, am I thinking rationally? You know, I just mentioned the dental technician. I'm thinking, should I be doing that? Or is that my desperate mind making me go in that direction? Or, you know, the corporate social responsibility route seems a sensible option. But I think it's asking your mind and your heart, you know, not being driven by fear. And I think a lot of people might have been driven by fear over the last year. And maybe Mm. there could be a lot of wrong decisions made. I think it's really important for people to step into a zone and do more meditation, not just, you know, once here and there, but just look at all the different things you can do to feel good and ask yourself the question when you're in the right frame of mind. Yeah, I think that period of self-reflection that we've had during the pandemic has been hugely important. And what we've seen as well, while work has been a problem for so many, is that people have stood up and been heroes within their communities. They've essentially started their own initiatives, volunteered and given up their time. And you've done something hugely inspiring there with your own campaigner, Victoria. So that's another example of that, standing up and being a hero in the community and doing something worthwhile with that time that you have. Yeah, I mean, I'm really passionate about I've been recording vlogs. So I recorded a vlog from the very first day when I got my biopsy result. And then I recorded it through because I had to convince the NHS that actually I'm following this natural route. They wanted to give me medication. But the medication they wanted to give me was just merely treating the symptoms. You know, it was too much estrogen. I'm thinking, hey, if I'm putting too much estrogen into my body, I need to stop that at the source. You know, if I just have medication, I'm not going to get, you know, and if you have one drug after another, you just have to, it's not very good for you. So I feel actually 
I feel very much in control with that now by what I'm taking into my body. And it's put, it has given me one bit of control at a time when everything else seems out of control. Mm. So in a sense, although I got unwell, in a way that saved me. Because, Excellent. you know, because mm. I'm in control of the food and meditating, etc. And that wellness is so, so important during a time like this where our awareness of not just physical health, but also mental health and well-being has been so heightened by the pandemic. And just before we finish up, uh, Victoria, um, I know that we don't have a crystal ball and we can't see the future, especially where there's so much uncertainty when you're at a career crossroads as you are. But in an ideal world, if we see social restrictions go over the next sort of three or four weeks, what do you think is next for you and where do you see yourself by this time in 2022? Do you know what? I see myself, I see myself keeping, I've got all this marketing knowledge and coaching knowledge and all my qualifications. I love seeing people come out of themselves and I, I need to use what I'm doing with other people for myself at the moment. But I, in an ideal world, we have to have a vision, don't we, of two or three years ahead and what we want ourselves to do. And mm. I think the trouble is, with all of this, it's clouded my vision. So I think I, you know, I need to sit down. I, I had a really clear vision of what I wanted to do before. I wanted to really, you know, have a big business helping people find their light, their spark and shine from within, you know, business leaders. Um, so it's in like personal branding and business branding. And I was so, so passionate about that. But because the confidence has been knocked, you're thinking, am I any good at this? Am I not? So I, I guess, really, I need to get my vision back before I can answer that question. Yeah, and it's going to be a little bit of time before that happens, which I certainly appreciate because there is so much uncertainty there. But as we start to see the clouds lifting and hopefully more of an idea of what the future holds coming back, Victoria, I'd love to actually welcome you back onto the programme in future to talk about what's been going on and catch up on the state of affairs because it's been a real eye-opening experience having you on the programme with us today. It really, really has. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. And the questions you've... um they have really made me think actually and then especially that last one what do you want to do I'm thinking I really don't know right at this moment I just want to do something that makes me feel valued and worthwhile exactly right it's all about just kind of finding our place in the world at the moment isn't it and doing the best we can not just for ourselves but the people around us I think that sense of community has been so heightened by this pandemic and Victoria just uh, before we do finish up and until we do hopefully speak again on the programme please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're not quite out of the woods yet, but fingers crossed that better days will be ahead of us. Oh, thank you so much. It's been great being on. It was a pleasure welcoming Victoria Vaughan from the Brand Surgery onto the programme today. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett, who will be discussing his take on the previous 15 months of the pandemic and his hope for the weeks and the months ahead of us. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? 
Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who have Mm. something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side 
effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the 
crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. 
Um, well, now, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so 
on different levels. I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. 
Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. 
Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government, but we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. 
Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.